Hello and welcome to Growing Tech Fast, the condensed Org 3D podcast where we talk about growing tech startups with those who have grown them. Today I'm joined by Girish Retagar, founder and CEO of Sprinto. Girish, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So for the benefit of our audience, Girish, um, I always like to start off uh, by you just giving us a brief intro into um, who you are, what your mission is, and the work you're doing at the moment. Oh, great. So um, like you mentioned, I'm Girish. Uh, you know, I'm primarily a developer first. I think of myself that, that way, though I look at sales right now. Um, and so I've been programming for more than 15 years now. Uh, at Sprinto, what we try and do is we help other B2B SaaS companies uh, get these compliances like SOC 2, ISO 27001, et cetera, which are primarily useful to, for uh, our customers to close uh, high ticket deals. Uh, you know, anybody who's in the sales space would, would probably recognize this. this. This is an important thing, especially when you're trying to close high ticket deals. Getting these deals closed usually takes months. These compliances usually takes months. What we do is we automate a bunch of things that would otherwise uh, require manual effort and get you there in a matter of, uh, you know, sometimes in days or uh, whatever it might take, but it, it usually takes one-tenth of the effort. So that's that's roughly what we do. Um, this is my second uh, SaaS company. Before this, I ran another B2B SaaS company called Recruiter Box. Uh, grew it to more than 2,500 customers, most of who were in the US and UK, I think. Um, and yeah, so, you know, we uh, we first faced the problem that I'm currently solving in my previous company. And uh, <laughs> I'm guessing that's that, that happens often. And, and that's roughly how we are here. <laughs> cool. Perfect. So, yeah, you kind of had a problem you needed solving. And then luckily, being a coder, you have the skill set to actually just go out and create something to fix it, basically. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> so there's a few things to kind of dive into there. Um, mm-hmm. Now, something that yeah, when you told me that you had done most of the coding work yourself with Sprinto um, in previous conversations, that's what that that really jumped out at me. And coming from sales myself, I'm aware of how um, much rejection there is in sales, right? And how much people tell you no and they're not interested. It's hard to not take that personally, but I was keen um, to know having actually built the product yourself that you're also trying to sell, how much harder does that hit when you, when you get rejected by somebody who doesn't want to buy the, the product? Um, to this, it's, it was hard, especially early on, you know, uh, I, I think it was a perfect storm where, you know, no one really knew us. And so it was hard to build credibility. Uh, mm-hmm. So early sales is always hard, but it was also the time when I think I was green as a salesperson and woefully unequipped. So, you know, this, this perfect storm happened where, where naturally, uh, you know, things weren't going as well. And I was probably dealing with more rejection than what a good salesperson would. And it was a bit of a vicious cycle. Uh, the good news is that, you know, we, we had actually built an insanely good product and that got us through our early sales. And, and uh, you know, I had help from an amazing team that we have here. And, and it's it sort of uh, like a couple of months later, we, we were soon dealing with enough customer conversations and so many customer conversations that I just didn't have the time to deal with rejection. You know, it, 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 it soon went from a phase where we were fighting for each deal to, to a phase where I was worrying about, you know, whether I'm dropping the ball on something. And basically I didn't have any time to mope around. So, so I, I guess that helped a little bit <laughs> where I just didn't have enough time to think about, uh, you, you know, Hey, we got rejected there and so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, uh, hard first few months. And, and then it sort of just became like a blur for me. 
It's <laughs> good advice. Yeah. So create so many opportunities um, that you don't even have time to dwell on the ones that don't go your way. <laughs> yeah, it's a good strategy. Definitely. So do you, do you think that um, having actually created that product yourself, it gave you more uh, ammunition when going into a sales situation because you could talk them through every detail of the nuts and bolts of the solution? Yeah, that helped. Uh, so the inherent nature of a program uh, of a product is also that I'm typically talking to a CTO on the other side, especially mm. in smaller companies. Uh, so that's a profile I understand. So it, it's very easy to at least get into the nitty gritties of, you know, like why exactly is this that way and, and so on and so forth. But it had a little bit of a downside too. I was too eager to just, you know, show and, and tell and look, look at this insanely great thing that we have built. So <laughs> I, I remember that one of the things I had to teach myself early on was to, uh, uh, you know, talk less and, and hear more and listen mm. more. Uh, so, so, so I, I'm pretty sure if I if I look at some of my early conversations, I'll, I'll cringe at them. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it, it was a little easier in the sense that I could at least relate to the, uh, the to the specific problems that uh, that are uh, you know like the, the counterpart on the other side was talking about. So that that context helped for sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So an area that you had to kind of develop as part of that sales skill set, I suppose, was that active listening piece. And something that I always try and tell myself in that situation is I've got two ears and one mouth and I should be using them in roughly that ratio, <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, which is hard to remember sometimes. So how, how did you kind of go about really trying to hone those sales skills? Was there someone you were learning from or was it all just kind of trial and error? What, what, what was your process for improving that part of your skill set? Um, it was mostly the latter. However, uh, you, you know, we, we were uh, like what happens in most sales calls today. Uh, you, you know, you, you sort of record these calls and there are, there are ways for you to know, you know, like how much time did you spend talking versus uh, versus the uh, versus your prospect. And I think at least at a very high level, I was trying to keep track of, you know, hey, I shouldn't be talking uh, more than them, which was mm -hmm. a good uh, you know, benchmark to get to given <laughs> my early calls were like 80% of the times I was talking. <laughs> so, uh, th th that sort of was a uh, good, good thing to get towards. But I, I think I, I just started, uh, you know, jotting down more notes, noticing whenever they, uh, they, they mentioned uh, something that was a very specific need for them, or they, they sort of hinted at a very specific anxiety they had, or, or you, you know, they, they, they say this thing in a certain manner, which tells you that, hey, this is something that they really care about. And I think that was uh, that was something that I just trained myself to do more and more and more. Uh, you know, like just keep a notepad and and write, uh, especially when something like that jumps out. So the, that uh, was a very organic process. Uh, it, it it was something uh, that, that I had to do myself, but I had help. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and obviously, your background before being um, sales focused is in engineering and it's in sort of i guess starting with a blank page and a problem and then coding something that will fix that problem right and mm -hmm. similarly with sales it's a case of finding out what the problem is and then you're just trying to solve that problem until you get to the end so how how much overlap do you think there is in those skill sets what about engineering is has actually been a strength for you as a salesperson oh wow um I, i'm not really sure uh if and there was anything that I could, you know, directly translate uh, that way, uh, you, you know, like obviously the, the two things don't look very similar on the surface, like uh, programming and coding is a little bit about getting to know, uh, getting to 
uh, getting a computer to do what you want. And most of the times you're just visualizing how data flows through your program. And you, you spend a lot of time thinking about structure and how to organize it and you know what should go where. And I'm no expert on sales uh, by a wide margin, but to me, uh, you know, uh, if programming was about figuring out programs, uh, sales was a little bit about figuring out people, uh, which is the, I mean, it, it seems obvious in hindsight, but that's, that's not the way I was thinking about it. And, you know, like in a conversation, uh, People are always telling you a little bit more about what their problem is, but not directly. So, so you've got to be uh, a little bit more, uh, like I think you you mentioned the word active listening. Uh, that I really like that phrase. And uh, I, I didn't exactly know how to describe it, but so thanks for that. <laughs> and, but, you know, people are telling you uh, uh, through, through minute ways, you know, uh, what their biases are, what their anxieties are, uh, why they haven't solved this problem already what happened when the last time they attempted to solve it. In some way, they're always telling you how they're thinking about this. And uh, I, I think the part that I got eventually a little bit better at is about visualizing how someone is thinking about the problem. Uh, and to me, then sales is about, uh, you know, speaking to how they think rather than, you know, uh, just talking about some, some spiel that I have ready and I'm just going to blurt it out like a tape recorder. So I think that was the main part. So, so uh, whenever I'm talking to her, uh, whenever, whenever I'm in a sales conversation, I, I now try to at least uh, draw like a mental map of how they are thinking about this. Uh, and, you know, where is it that they, they, uh, have faced a problem before or what specifically it is about is that have made them uncomfortable in solving this before, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's very useful. Uh, so so I, I, at the end of the day, both programming and uh, uh, sales comes to having the right mental model. My, my mental model currently for doing sales is this. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if it happened because I have, uh, I have an engineering background or otherwise, but you know, this is what works for me right now. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And it sounds like it's still developing with every conversation as well which i think from my perspective is one of the most important skills of someone in sales is to just if you can just keep learning and improving with every single interaction and building that model up um then you'll you'll keep getting better basically um and it sounds like that's been your approach and that's what you're still doing um so in terms of previous experience then i want to talk about your um your time at recruiter box and kind of mm-hmm. learn a bit more about that journey. You mentioned it at the top end of the call. I know that you really grew that company out um, successfully. So I'd love to just kind of know what that journey looked like really and, and how that started and how it came to an end through, through an acquisition. Yeah, it was a build of a wild ride, especially at the beginning. Uh, my, my current co-founder, uh, Raghu, and I started Recruiter Box too. And we were super naive then. You know, like, uh, I think around that time, we worked on a ton of ideas and we built many unsuccessful things before we built Recruiter Box. And uh, I think the most important thing there was that we actually built things. So, uh, so some background there, but both Raghu and I had never professionally programmed before. We weren't computer science grads and our jobs before that were largely being spreadsheet and PowerPoint jockeys. So, you, you know, like, uh, so I, I think the first order of business for us was to teach ourselves programming, which happened, you know, as we were uh, going through all those failed projects. At the end of the whole thing, we at least knew how to program. And, and you know, that was a huge uh, and a useful thing uh, when Vector Box actually came around. So uh, 
we 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 built a very early version of recruiter box put it out there it started getting traction and uh, you, you know we we had another co-founder join us at the time which was immensely useful and then uh, from there on sort of never looked back and and you, you know like i i think it it took us about a year to get to probably like a first handful of customers right from the time that we started building the product and, and started putting it out. But uh, from there on, we, we sort of just went on a, uh, uh, a very fast growth, primarily which was fueled by inbound uh, signups. So, so we, we sort of found a sweet spot where people would sign up for Recruiter Box, go through like a 14-day free trial, try out the product, they like it, and, and they used to sort of convert it to paying customers. And that remained the backbone of the business till the very end. So we had about, uh, I think, 70 to 80% of our customers who used to become customers without ever talking to a human ever in the sales process. Wow. So uh, yeah, among other things, what that meant is that we had to learn how to build great onboarding in the product. So I think uh, the, we built onboarding before we knew the word onboarding. Uh, we, we just felt <laughs> that, hey, there's this, there's this person uh, who, who's, who's found Recruiter Box on the internet and you know, they have no clue what Recruiter Box is like and what it works like and how it solves this problem. So you need to sort of guide them through a process where they understand how this actually works rather than just leaving them on a dashboard like just clicking around and, and trying to figure this thing out. So I think the, that was one of the things that we did pretty well at RecruiterBox. And uh, so our growth was mostly fueled by inbound leads uh, in SEO. Um, we, uh, we, we found a speed spot primarily in the US uh, as, as a market. Um, like I was saying earlier, 80% of our customers were in the US and UK. And uh, yeah, we, we, we sort of ran that for about seven years uh, before we sold the business to a private equity firm in the US. So that was that was a wild ride, a uh, <laughs> bunch of learnings. Among other things, RecruiterBox was a bootstrap business, which meant that uh, we ended up doing a bunch of things uh, in a hands-on manner. Uh, like, so in the beginning, it was programming, then it was product development, design, sales, marketing, you name it. We, we, one of us has probably been, you know, hands-on under at some point in time. So that, that was one of the useful things about running RecruiterBox. <laughs> wow yeah sounds like you learned a lot through that journey um and also cliche cliche that i hear a lot that is true about startups is you've got to be able to wear many hats and i think you really uh <laughs> you really kind of um encapsulate that phrase of wearing many hats because first you build it and then you sell it and you do a bunch of other things along the way as well <laughs> yeah um so you mentioned there as well that you uh built a few things that kind of didn't work out and you experimented mm -hmm. with a few things. Were there any standout failures from that time that you attribute a specific sort of um, lesson to, for example? Oh, my simple biggest lesson uh, there is that, uh, you know, like as a programmer, uh, when you think of something in, and your, your immediate next, uh, uh, you know, idea is to try and build it. Uh, and one of the things that we did at Sprinto is that we said that, okay, we are not going to program until we validate this problem is real. So, so uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so just to paint an opposite of what, uh, you know, we, we, we did at Recruiter Box is, is in Sprinto, we, we actually had like about, uh, I don't know, like we had about like 50 interviews. Uh, we, we actually spoke to people trying to validate whether this thing is real because we knew we could build this. The, the, the more important thing is to know whether this is useful, uh, so, <laughs> uh, which is exact opposite of what we were doing early on, uh, you know, around the time we were doing Box. Like we, we used to 
like sit and we should think hey this sounds like a great idea and you know half an hour later we we just uh, you know uh, typing into our keyboards <laughs> building this thing out <laughs> and then you know like a few weeks or, or a couple of months later we have something that that actually works but you know it doesn't it doesn't actually uh, you know as exciting or as interesting to like a customer or a, a or a prospect and and we went through those cycles many times so, so i think my single largest lesson there is that uh, what seems exciting to you may not necessarily be useful for someone else um so so it's it's good to have some way of validating what you're building whether if, even if it means that you're building it quickly and putting it out there quickly um uh, you, you know it, that that's also a completely fair way of validating it but making sure you validate whatever you're building early is my biggest biggest lesson from little box <laughs> yeah so not only worrying about whether you can do something but whether you should do something basically exactly <laughs> yes <laughs> Okay, perfect. And then that 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 was obviously technology um, that was quite disruptive in the recruitment space. And you've you've now moved into this cybersecurity space, which is um, kind of well very different. Um, so what what kind of gave you the ability and uh, the confidence to kind of make that jump from industry to industry? Um. So again, personal experience. So uh, we we faced this problem in RecruiterBox. Uh, one of the things that happened in RecruiterBox is that we were often getting asked for these compliances like SOC 2 and ISO 27001 and GDPR became big around 2017 or so. So mm -hmm. the, you, you know all of these things were happening around the while. And we I remember that we we actually hired like a consultant uh, to help us get through these compliances and. Uh, the person spent like about six months in our company and, and you, you know, we, we derailed like a bunch of other engineering projects. So that's just so we could make space for this and we burnt our fingers with it. I wouldn't say it was a very pleasant experience. So, so mm -hmm. in some way we were scarred by that entire thing. And when we were looking at other ideas to build, this was one of the experiences that we could, you know, sort of connect forward uh, to. We, we could say that, hey, this is something that was painful for us, is potentially painful for other folks. And, uh, you know, like something that we need to, uh, that we could look into. So of the half the dozen ideas that we sort of shortlisted, this was one of them. And, you know, then we sort of interviewed a bunch of people and we validated it was right. But, you know, that's how the jump from, something like recruiting to, to cybersecurity happened. It was primarily because we ran a SaaS company before this. And, and so we had to validate, uh, or we had some insight into the kind of problems that SaaS founders and SaaS teams would face. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and so heading into sort of the rest of this year, obviously there's been so many changes and so many big sort of news items happening at the moment. What do you think are the biggest challenges that companies are going to be facing um, in the near future in terms of just being compliant? Um, so I think the the largest thing that uh, we probably all, anybody who is in the SaaS uh, uh, or just a cloud uh, services space is going to see is that compliances are simply becoming more and more common. This is something that used to happen only when you were selling to like you know, like a fortune thousand deal or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's increasingly uh, becoming more and more common, even if you're doing like just five figure deals and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the second thing that I'm seeing is that uh, there used to be a time when, you know, you, you are compliant with SOC 2 and that's good enough for the most part. But I'm increasingly seeing that companies uh, need like a wider range of these compliances like SOC 2, there's this ISO 27001 and every country has seems to have its own privacy laws. Uh, you know, Canada has PIPEDA, we have GDPR in Europe, we have CCPA in uh, in California, uh, I think India is coming up with its own uh, privacy laws and so on and so forth. So there's just a, uh, you know, uh, like a complete explosion of the number of things that you need to be compliant with. 
And uh, the fact is that running this process manually will derail your product building. So, you know, you have to find a way as a company to, to try and do this in a, in a manner that doesn't hurt your uh, engineering or your product building. So in spite of doing all of this work, uh, you, you are going to get asked by your customers about some specific questions about your security, because at the end of the day, SaaS means that my data is on your servers and I want some assurance that you're keeping this data safe and secure. So over and above, you know, just looking at these compliances as check boxes that you need to, that you need to tick in order to close your sales, you are eventually going to have to run like a good security program and not just look at this as a checkbox. So I, I what I'm guess, I guess what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, uh, at some point uh, now or in the next couple of years, we're going to see more and more SaaS companies having to make the mental shift to think of compliances as uh, as an integral part of their growth. This was something that used to be on the fringes and it's soon going to become fairly mainstream. And, and that's something uh, that companies will have to get uh, used to. Uh, you know, that this is going to become as uh, common a piece of software or the common a piece of tool that you need to have like an HRMS or something like that. So, so you are going to see a lot more of this uh, is my bet. Right. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Interesting as well, how it's becoming so much more common for everyone as well. Um, and yeah, GDPR coming in seems to really pave the way for more and more privacy laws um, becoming a thing. And obviously it's changed in the UK even more recently with the cookies that are available and um, opting in rather than opting out and all of that. So yeah, it's certainly a growth market I can see uh, moving forwards, and I think it's just going to get more and more complex in terms of uh, terms of compliance. So um, we're kind of just about coming to the end of the time here, Garish. Um, so I just have one more kind of question for you, and it's quite an open one. It's just what what does the future look like for Sprinter? Where are you trying to get with um, with the company and with the idea over the next sort of uh, two to three years? Great question. So, uh, you, you know, uh, like I was saying earlier, SaaS fundamentally means that my data is on your servers and uh, people increasingly want some assurance that you're keeping this data safe and secure. And uh, what we really envision with Sprinto is to create this sort of a trust currency for cloud commerce. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, uh, you are increasingly going to get asked questions about whether you're keeping my data safe and safe, secure, and there needs to be some way for you to demonstrate that. And Sprinto is basically playing into that field. In 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 about the next two or three years, specifically, I I, I specifically see two parts of the uh, or two segments of people who have trouble with this. One is the you know the small guys uh, who don't even get like a ticket to the to, to this table because they don't have these compliances. And, and you know, uh, the way we look at it is that our job is to make this a level playing field where as a, as a SaaS company, you can play on the merit of your product and your feature and not you, you, you're not sort of uh, put out of a deal simply because you don't have these compliances. You know, the, these, these are resource intensive, but when you use something like Sprinter, they actually become accessible to you and you can get there fairly fast, fairly quickly without actually spending as much effort. So that's, that's one part of the program. Like we, we look at this as our job is over the next couple of years is to make this a level playing field. Mm. Um, when you come to the larger companies, uh, you know, they spend a ton of money and millions of dollars on making themselves more secure, but they really, the people running these programs have no central pane of glass where they have visibility across what's really going on with all the dollars that they are spending. And Sprinter's job over there is to give you like a single source of truth about, you know, this is really what's going on with your compliance program. And you can actually have one place where you know what's really going on, where work is pending and who is it pending on and so on and so forth. 
So, so that's the way I look at Sprint over the next two or three years. Uh, you, you know, there is, uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, like any sort of economy requires you to have like a common currency that we all uh, depend on. And, and I think uh, Sprinto can become that way of actually creating that trust currency, at least in terms of security of your data, uh, mm. you know, over the next two to three years. So, so that's the way we look at this internally. Uh, cool. Exciting. <laughs> well, uh, I can't wait to see how much success you have um, in that journey. And based on, yeah, I mean, the product and the problem that it's solving, I think it's only going to go up. So uh, thank you so much for the time. I know you're busy and uh, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. So really appreciate you coming on the pod today. I really enjoyed being here, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. Well, um, for those of you at home, uh, thanks for listening and tune in next time to Growing Tech Fast.